only announcement I'm aware of right now is that the announcement of men's uh, prayer breakfast. Uh, so to men to be reminded to be here uh, by 7.30 Saturday morning for our breakfast and Bible study before we have our deacons meeting for those who are those who are deacons. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll just make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. We always begin with a time to confess uh, sin, and there's often times, maybe people listening, watching, that wonder what sin is. We live in an era today that if you haven't been brought up on the Word of God, many people just think of sin in terms of five or six different major uh, major sins. And the more you study the Word, the more you realize how how much we sin and all the different various facets of sin, mental attitude sins of anger and resentment and irritability and complaint and then sins of the tongue like complaining and murmuring, um, maybe uh, various overt sins, lust patterns of the soul. All of these are sins that... Uh, break our ongoing rapport with the Lord. So we always begin with a time of silent prayer so people can make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord and be, continue their walk with the Spirit but before we start our time in the Word. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, just a wonderful privilege that we have that we can come together, that we can talk about you, that we can think about you, that you can reveal yourself to us through your word. And as we learn about who you are and what you've done, may you help us to expand and deepen our understanding. For Father, we have, we often uh, come before you, and we are in such a hurry in this life now that we don't really take the time to think, to pause, to reflect. Father, we help, pray that you would uh, impress upon us our sinful, depraved condition and the extent of your magnificent grace in providing a perfect salvation a sufficiency in all things, sufficient grace, sufficient for salvation, and that there's no problem, there's no difficulty, there's no circumstance in our life that has not been understood by you for eternity past, and that you've made complete, total, perfect, sufficient provision so that we can learn to walk in dependence upon you. And we pray that you'll challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we're moving forward in our study of worship. Uh, tonight we're looking at the loss of paradise, and 
That involves two things, sin and sacrifice, which are important for understanding what is essential in worship from the time of the fall. So we've been looking at this topic of what the Bible teaches about worship ever since we got into a study of Second Samuel chapter 6, the movement of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and this expansion of corporate worship that took place and that is described in First Chronicles 14, 15, and 16. And one of the things that we learn here is that there are advances that occur, uh, innovations, as it were, that occur in worship that are, we, as far as we know, that are not the result of, of revelation, of special revelation, either to David and Solomon or later uh, to Josiah, because there's a great expansion and revival under the reign of Josiah in the, in the uh, late 600s. And this tells us something that there can be innovations and expansion and development of things in, in worship within a biblical framework. But we have to understand that there are certain absolutes that establish parameters for, for, uh, for biblical worship and that we should always be pushing ourselves, uh, in that particular, in, in that direction where we think more, more deeply and more significantly. This is, this is often the result of a church culture that in our world has become very shallow and superficial today. Consequently, we produce shallow and superficial music. But because we're shallow and superficial people and we don't spend much time in the Word, we don't like being called shallow and superficial because we think we're being pretty pretty uh, deep and profound. And the reality is that just shows the, how narrow our frame of reference is. I think I pointed this out before that prior to World War II, if you were Anglican, you, you, you would not even be considered for ordination unless you had already memorized the entire Psalter, all 150 Psalms. And we think of that as, wow, that is extreme. But see, it is that kind of expectation of pastoral teaching and leadership that has characterized much of the history of Christianity, and it really shows us how we've lowered our standards, we fall far short of where things were 150 years ago, but it was an understanding that the men who... Um, that the men who were leaders in worship, and I, that's not in the sense of wor- the, the song leader today. I don't like, uh, I think it's an aberration to refer to the person who leads music as the worship leader because the pastor is the worship leader. He is the one who orchestrates all aspects of the morning service. He's the one who uh, usually will give the opening prayer, the invocation, and and overall he will direct the uh, direction of the service or oversee the direction of the service so that uh, it, it comes together, blends together, and the ultimate uh, form of worship is understanding the proclamation of the truth of God's word. These are aspects that we'll be studying as we go uh, through and continue our study uh, study of worship. 
And so as we've fallen from this, we need to realize that, that this affects us personally in terms of our personal worship. We've all been affected, myself included. And when I look at a whole generation of pastors that have come along that are roughly my age, they don't, they, they, they were held to lower standards. I've seen some who've come behind that are held to even lower standards. And, uh, it's really sad that Sheep will let their shepherds be so poorly educated, poorly trained, and expect so little of them in terms of their time in the Word, their time in prayer, and understanding their biblical job description. So, but if you have low standards for yourself, it's easy to develop low standards uh, for a pastor. So one of the things that we have looked at is that in Genesis chapter 1, man is created in the image of God. Male and female equally, they are in the image of God, which means they are to represent God, and that is connected to their function as seen in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and their function is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, uh, the animals of the field, the beasts of the field. And as they do that, they are representing God as the ultimate owner of the earth and the one uh, who is there ultimately answerable to. So it's not an autonomous rule. It's not a dictatorial, tyrannical rule. That comes only as a result of sin. But it is a role of ruling as a servant. And we've seen that that is further developed when we get into Genesis chapter 2, verse 14, that that uh, man was placed in the garden to serve and to keep two words that are frequently used to describe the role of priests. So we've seen this imagery at the very beginning, this this language at the very beginning that tells us that man is a priest king and that if man is created as a priest king, then that means that our founda- one of our foundational purposes in life is to worship God. To serve him is to worship him. And that man was created to be a worshiper and that all of life would be designed under this rubric of worshiping God, serving him and obeying him. And there was, uh, and as they do that, as we do that, we recognize that that this was based on this idea of having a fellowship with God. And this was a very active thing. Think about what's going on in the garden, that every day God came and spent time with Adam and Eve. He talked with them. There's communication there's an enjoyment of that relationship. That's why many times I start class, I say, well, I hope you have been enjoying your relationship with God. Fellowship is a very active concept. Often i found that people think of fellowship as being in fellowship. That's a very passive term. I'm just in fellowship. I'm just sitting here like a big spiritual lump waiting for the Holy Spirit to slap me upside the head to do something. That is a subtle form of mysticism, actually. Fellowship is something that is active. That's why I prefer using the term 
walking by the Spirit. We are commanded to walk by the Spirit. That is a very active idea. And this is what we see throughout Scripture. We are to be enjoying that fellowship with God. Since the fall, that's abrogated, but we recover it when we're saved because of our position uh, in Christ. And it's an ongoing fellowship uh, with a sovereign and holy uh, triune God. And we celebrate this. We focus on it. We celebrate it by means of a- adoration, which incorporates words such as praise, uh, reflecting on things for which we are grateful, how God has interceded in our life and provided things for us. I find that young believers, young Christians, often, you know, will, will talk in certain superficial Christian jargon and, and you have noticed perhaps in your own life that you went through this stage, uh, and you see this with a lot of younger people, especially in certain uh, context, and they talk a lot, and they uh, season their language with phrases like, "Well, praise the Lord, and I'm so thankful to God," and 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 bless, and they use the word overuse the word blessing again and again and again, uh, thinking that by using that kind of language, it somehow that shows that they are more spiritual. And what I've discovered is that that people like that. Uh, generally have a different... How, how do you relate to people at the workplace? How do you wor- relate to your neighbors if you think that you have to talk in this kind of Christian jargon in order to to be spiritual? And it creates a, a superficiality in and of itself. But we praise God by talking in everyday normal language like we talk to people and friends about how God has provided for us, what he has done for us, how he has answered prayer. And as part of that, it reinforces our trust, and so we often will include within those comments a, uh, a commitment of trust and, and our need to be more consistently obedient to what has been revealed in Scripture. And then worship also involves remembering what God has done in saving us at the cross and providing an ongoing um, spiritual growth and the means for spiritual growth, and all of this is based on the idea that we are we're living today in light of eternity. We're moving, we're moving forward. So we looked at this and saw that there's imagery related to the initial sanctuary on the earth, the Garden of Eden, where God dwelt and was in their presence. And that brings an important word into our vocabulary, our worship vocabulary, and that's the word sanctuary. And we've all heard, made comments over the years about, well, we meet in the auditorium. This isn't the sanctuary. The sanctuary is the individual believer. And there's a lot more truth to that than not. But there's also this sense that when we are gathered as believers to worship, there's a true biblical fellowship there because our focus is on Christ and because we all are uh, have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in us, that this is something that is an aggregate and in, in, um, corporate worship that makes it a set-apart place. That's what sanctuary means. All this goes back to the fact that we have a really hard time understanding the biblical concept of holiness. 
that holiness is not being morally pure or being perfect. It is being set apart to the service of God. And so when we come together as sanctified ones in a congregation, we are coming together because we have set apart that time in our lives on Sunday morning to worship the Lord. We are coming together to show that as a group of believers, we are set apart to the service of God. And so in a real sense, it is a time for uh, realizing that this is a sanctuary. It is a place where we've set apart for the service of God, the worship of God, the study of God's word. And so we see that this gets distorted and destroyed because of sin. Man is kicked out of that initial sanctuary. And so the memory of that sanctuary is reflected in the tabernacle and the temple. And the articles of furniture in the tabernacle and temple reflect the memory of that paradise uh, and also look forward to the restoration of the earth as a sanctuary of God and the paradise of God in the new heavens and the new earth. We've also seen that man is kicked out of the garden and that that is depicted in the furniture of the tabernacle, especially the veils that depict the cherubs, which reminds them that God set an army of cherubs around the Garden of Eden to prevent man from entering. Last time we looked at uh, the significance of the trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and how that's represented by the, uh, the golden lampstand reflects the tree of life, the Broken tablets represent the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents who gets to determine what is right or wrong, and God is determining that himself through his revelation. But man rejected that and was going to uh, grab for it all on his own. The cherubim I just mentioned, uh, the image of God. It's interesting, you go through a study of the history of religions, and as far back as you go, there is the idea of sacrifice. There's the idea of an image of the God in the temple. Uh, there is this idea of uh, some sort of reason to placate the God because of, of human failure. And where do these ideas come from? They're, they're expressed in some different ways in different religions, but they all reflect a common origin, which is stated as the truth that we have in the scriptures. And in the tabernacle or temple, we have man. That's why we're not supposed to make any uh, graven images of God because the image of God is, the, is mankind, the human being who's serving as a priest. And so this becomes developed in a, a distinctive way in the church age because every believer is a priest to God and he is a sanctuary for the indwelling uh, of God the Holy Spirit, in fact, all members of the Trinity. Now, what I want to do today is start to move forward a little bit in terms of understanding what destroyed the initial environment of worship in the garden, that is, what is the original normative circumstance of God's perfect creation. God created a test for man, one test, 
and that had to do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.9 states that, that God put uh, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, in the sanctuary. So there's the, the uh, source of life, which comes from God, uh, and the source of death that they're warned in Genesis 2.16 and 17, especially verse 17, that if you ate from the tree, or if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then, and notice the verbiage here, in that day, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, a couple of things to point out here. First of all, we see the abundance of God here. Some of it comes across in English. Some of it comes across a little more in the Hebrew. But the first statement that God makes about this in Genesis 2.16 is, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. That is a profound statement. It, 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 God's grace abundantly provides for, for man. And there, there's a rich variety of food that is available that he will never uh, tire of and that will provide for all of his physical uh, needs and for uh, nourishment. And then there's a warning about the tree. And that tree is uh, stated to be um, the good tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day you eat of it. Now, that's a pretty precise term. That's not talking about years later. It's just at that time, in that day, instantly uh, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that phrase there indicates a certainty, an absolute certainty. And the way it's stated in the Hebrew is interesting because uh, the Hebrew presents this using what's called an infinitive construct plus the verb, and it's an intensification of the meaning of the word, which is used to express something uh in, in, in hyperbole and exaggeration and to emphasize its certainty. And so that's what God is saying there. But what's also interesting here is when you look at that parallel at the end of verse 16, when it says, you may freely eat, that is the same grammatical construction. It's an infinitive construct plus the, uh, plus the verb, which is saying the same thing. It's saying, um, you know, that's why I've often said it was somehow somewhere in uh, the background of biblical studies in the 19th century or 20th century be translated, dying you will die. See, we have two types of death. That's not biblical Hebrew. That idiom is, is not correct at all. Uh, you wouldn't translate the first part, eating you will eat, and there were two different kinds of eating. It's the same grammar. And, and that first line freely eat the using that construct is saying you will eat in abundance you will certainly eat and you will enjoy all of it it is a hyperbolic way of talking about the joy that you'll receive from all of the provision that god has given so there's a tremendous way in which we understand god's grace and then of course there's the warning about about the certainty of spiritual uh, spiritual death in verse 17. Now, what we see here, I think, is very important, is that in, when we are talking about 
the pre-fall worship, that we see that that then as well as now, the worship of Adam and Eve for God, their service to God, increased and grew. They're learning, and they're learning about God. They're learning who God is. They're learning what God has revealed to them. And the more they learned, the more robust their worship became because as they learned and as that learning shaped their mind and shaped their thinking, they realized more and more how much God had provided for them, how much God had given them, and how uh, truly abundant was their their life, and that would also produce thankfulness and gratitude, which is also very much a part of of uh, our worship. Rabbis had an interesting way of talking about worship and giving back to God, and they used the illustration of a little girl who would go out into her mother's flower garden. Her mother did all the work. She planted the seeds. She weeded. She took care of the garden and produces this beautiful garden. And the little girl goes out and she picks flowers from her mother's garden. And then she goes in, makes a nice bouquet, and gives it to her mother. That is a lot like what we are. We are placed in this great earth that God has provided for him. And we are taking from what God made. And we are doing something with it, and then we're giving it back to him. It is an act of dependence. It's an act of gratitude, and it shows our dependence upon God. And the more we reflect on that idea and the more we think about how that is the way our gratitude to God should work, then the more we personally understand and develop a capacity uh, to worship. So the test is whether or not the creature is going to remain dependent upon God in every area, specifically in the area of understanding right and wrong, understanding good and evil. Is the creature going to yield to the temptation to define it for themselves, or is the creature going to... Uh, resist that and listen only to God to instruct and to teach about the nature of right and wrong and good and evil. And so when we move from chapter 2 to chapter 3, uh, we've gone through this, these chapters many times in different ways, but now I'm just focusing on them in terms of what they uh, tell us about worship. In Genesis 3.1, we're introduced now to the serpent, and there, if this were set to music, if this were an opera, you would begin to hear the kettle drums rumble, and you would hear the bass notes playing as the uh, evil villain is slithering onto the scene. And so we're told about this serpent, and we have the statement in verse 1, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. Now, what's interesting is how Genesis tells this story, because at this point, you might want to ask the question, is that talking about the serpent, or is that talking about the one who is inhabiting the serpent? We don't know going through Scripture. You don't know until you get to Revelation 12, 
that the serpent is Satan. He's the dragon who is called the serpent of old. And so there is a physical serpent, but that serpent has been uh, taken over by this evil one who is Satan or Lucifer who has fallen from God. So is this talking about the serpent itself, or is this talking about the one inhabiting the serpent? Now somebody's going to say, well, what, what's the answer? I don't know. I think that that's why it's written this way, is to get our, capture our attention and to get us to think about this. And the word that is used there in the Hebrew is the word arm, and this has the idea of being crafty or shrewd. And it's also a word that is translated numerous times in the Proverbs as being skilled in decision-making. The word is used positively in many Proverbs as a contrast to the foolish man. But when it is used in a negative sense... It is used to refer to someone who is uh, characterized by artful or cunning practices. He's tricky. He's going to be deceptive. And um, therefore, he is uh, he's able to uh, deceive. And this, of course, is a picture that we see of Satan. So ultimately, as you can see, I think this is referring to the power behind the serpent. Uh, that he is able to twist things, able to uh, overwhelm the woman with his logic and his uh, his trickery, and in order to deceive her, he comes in disguise as something beautiful and something attractive, and he is a designed to be a subordinate. The serpent was one of the beasts of the field. And he was to be ruled over by the woman. And so what we're going to see here is that the source of temptation is one that comes uh, not from someone who is viewed as evil or wicked, but is viewed as a subordinate, someone who is non-threatening. And often that is what happens in life as we get uh, caught up, we get uh, tempted into something because... It doesn't look like it's that bad. We get sucked into a deception. And we know that behind all evil is Satan. That doesn't, do, that doesn't mean that we can fall back on that old Flip Wilson line that the devil made me do it. Uh, but we, because we are responsible, Eve was held accountable and responsible for what took place in terms of her deception. In 2 Corinthians 11, 14, we're told that Satan appears as a angel of light. He is able to transform himself. And how in the world are we going to be able to withstand the temptations of Satan? He is wily. He's crafty. We're warned against him numerous places in the scripture. Ephesians 6, 10 and following is one. And how would Eve have protected herself? If I've made the statement and I have that God provided everything for them, he has provided for them. He's provided just what she needs in order to avoid this temptation. And what has he given her? Revelation. But that revelation was initially given to the man. 
He is told uh, and given the instruction in verses 15 and 16, Then the Lord God took the man, the woman has not been created yet, and put him in the Garden of Eden and gave him the instructions to serve and to keep it. And he is the one who is given the information about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God created the woman. It was the man's responsibility to fully teach her, fully uh, instruct her. And he may not have. He may have uh, left something out. He may have uh, not indicated the significance of everything, and uh, but we don't know. We know that the when we get into First Timothy chapter two verses eight through twelve, that it places uh, responsibility on the woman because she is d- deceived, uh, and so that take that takes place in, in this time. So Satan will disguise himself. He'll transform himself into an angel of light. And what he offers is something that sounds good, looks good, and seems more than logical, rational, reasonable to us. Think about Peter. Peter is with Christ, and Jesus is on the way to the cross. And Peter says, Lord, you don't have to do this. We'll protect you. And the Lord says, get behind me, Satan, because Not that Peter was indwelt by Satan, but that he is representing a satanic idea. He is a source of temptation. He, like Eve, is dealing with uh, Jesus, like Eve, is dealing with a subordinate. Uh, Peter was a subordinate to Jesus. The serpent was a subordinate to Eve. So the serpent comes along, and he is going to um, begin to entice her entice her by distorting or opening the door for her to distort the Word of God. He wants to probe to see if she knows what the prohibition is. When we get into the New Testament and we see the temptations of Jesus that are described in Matthew uh, Matthew chapter uh, 3, then when Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and Satan begins to tempt him, what's he doing? He, he's He's, mis- he's quoting scripture. He is misquoting or misapplying the scripture, but he quotes scripture. And that shows us that temptation often comes wrapped up in something good. But Jesus refutes him by re- rejecting Satan's interpretation of the text, and he refutes it with another text. What that tells us when we look at these two a temptation scenarios is that if you don't know the Bible, you are making yourself a victim of temptation. You will succumb to it because you don't know the word. You're not handling it uh, correctly. And so the principle we see here is failure to know the word leads to a breakdown in worship. Foundational to worship, therefore, is the knowledge of God's word. That whatever else we do, we have to know the truth of God's word. Jesus says to the woman at the well that their time was coming when we would worship by means of the spirit and by means of truth. And if you don't know the truth, then you can't worship correctly and biblically, and you're just making it up as you go along. So Satan approaches her, and he raises the question, has God indeed said? 
And the way this is structured in the Hebrew is he's raising doubt. He's wanting her to think about what God has said and to put herself in a position of judging it. But he also wants to see how much she knows. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of, of the garden? Is this what God said? He wants to know, does she understand revelation at this point? Is she, un, does she understand what God has said? And so we go back and we look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17 again. And Jesus said, of every tree of the garden you may abundantly eat. Notice the difference. He said, has God, God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden of Eden and uh, then in 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And so he's being accurate in the way he's presenting it, in the way he's quoting it, but he's not accurate in the way he sets it up with this little nuance of the question that he is asking. And so by focusing on a clear-cut statement of God, uh, he sort of is disarming because uh, it, it's not really up for debate. Has this really what God said? Or maybe we just haven't understood it correctly. And often this is a problem that comes up throughout the history of the Old Testament. As you think about what has happened down through the ages, how many times the word of God was not really understood or was misinterpreted or was misapplied or was taught wrong. You think about different situations. You think about uh, Moses. When Moses is told the first time uh, to, that the children of Israel did not have water, that he was told to strike the rock. But the second time he's told to speak to the rock and he struck it. And, that, and God said, you're not going to go into the promised land. See, worship is precise. God's precise in what he says and what he means. It's not open for us to uh, say, well, you know, I want to do it a little bit this way or a little bit that way. Samson found out when he cut his hair, that was it. He lost his power. It's it's just an absolute God has a stri- is very strict ab- about these things. We think about Saul and God's command to Saul to uh, completely annihilate all of the Amalekites, man, woman, and child. And he leaves some of them alive, and he leaves their cattle alive. And for that, he is going to uh, lose the throne. And you can go through the scripture again and again and again and see that, that it's little things, the details of God's revelation that when it's misunderstood, you have a major problem. You think about the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea. And at Kadesh Barnea, God tells them to go into the land, send in the spies, go into the land to see how, see, see the situation, do a reconnaissance so that they can understand how they're going to take the land. But they misinterpret it. They misinterpret what God said as if God said, go see if you can take the land. Now, 
only Caleb and Joshua understood that God had given them the land, and he wasn't telling them to go see if they could take it, but just to spy it out and understand what the what the circumstances were going to be when they got in so that they could trust God. But because they misinterpreted God's command, it caused that whole generation to be trapped in the wilderness until they died off. They were prohibited from entering in into the promised land. And so it is important to understand precisely what the word of God says so that we can, uh, we can apply it. And so Eve then in her answer says that we may eat of, eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now God didn't say that. God said we may, you may freely eat from all the trees of the garden. So she sort of uh, reduces the significance of what God said. And she's saying we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. So she's played it down a little bit. And then in verse 3, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. And see, what she's doing there is she's adding to it. Because they could have touched the tree, they could have leaned up against it, they could have had their picnic under the tree, they could have uh, walked around it, and nothing was was going to happen. God just said, don't eat from the tree. And then we have um, this last phrase translated in the King James Bible as, lest you die, which is a really good translation, but lest is kind of an archaic uh, English word, the NIV translates it, or you will die. That's not right. That is what God said, but that's not what Eve said. Eve uses a small word in the Hebrew here, which is the word pen, P-E-N, and it has a negative sense to it, and it means in order that you not die. It's not, or you will die. See, there's a little wiggle room there that maybe we won't die, but it's possible that 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 we could, we could die, but maybe not. So that is important to get that word translated correctly. She's not directly quoting God here. She's putting, a, maybe we won't die. Uh, he just said, don't eat of it lest you die. Possibly you might die. God doesn't say possibly you might die. He's saying you certainly will die. And so she's already uh, fudging what God has said, indicating that her uh, knowledge or understanding of the Scripture is not what it ought to be. So this is the real issue here, that that um, we have to know exactly what God says to do. He is very specific John 8.44, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of the father of the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, and that's what he's doing. He is using this to lie, and that's what he does in the next verse. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, this is interesting in the Hebrew because what God said was you will certainly die, and he uses that construction of an infinitive construct plus the verb, and what Satan does is he puts a no in front of it to say you will not certainly die. It's bad grammar because normally the negative is supposed to go in front of the verb. 
not between, and that would be between the infinitive and the verb. But Satan puts the the low, the no, in the front of it to emphasize he's directly quoting God and he's directly opposing God at this point. He's going to be bold like this because he realizes she doesn't know what the issues are. She is ignorant of the initial prohibition, and so now he can he can exploit that lack of knowledge, and he says, you're not going to die. And then he's going to impugn God's character. And he says, see, God's really out for his own here. He doesn't want any competition. He's going to limit you. He's going to prevent you from reaching your full potential. He's going to keep you from all of the happiness and joy that's holding up for you. How many times do you hear people, you know they're getting involved in sin, whatever it may be, and you, you talk to them about it and they say, well, I don't think God would want me not to be happy. And I'm going to be happy by doing that, whatever it might be. And we've heard that from so many people. Probably most of us in this room have said that at one point or another, perhaps. But that's that's what the, the rationale is. Oh, God wants me to be happy. And so doing X, Y, or Z is going to make me happy. So obviously that would be God's will. And that's starting from a false assumption that God's primary objective in your life is not for you to be happy. It's not for me to be happy. It is for me to glorify him. And if I glorify him, then I will experience true joy and happiness. But that's not the, that is the result of obtaining the objective. It's not the objective. And so that changes, uh, changes everything. Satan is the, uh, John 8:44 you're of the father of the devil and the desires of your father you want to do he was a murderer from the beginning who died we all died spiritually he's a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is this is a strong absolute statement there is no truth in him it's completely distorted. Now, Satan could say true things. He could go out and say, the leaves on the tree are green, the sky is blue, the water's wet, but it's all within a framework of falsehood. And therefore, even when he says what may be lowercase true statements, they're false statements because they're within a false framework. That's the problem with a lot of modern science. The whole system is false because the interpretive framework is false. That's why you end up with people uh, espousing things like global warming or anthro- to, technically cor- to be technically correct, anthropogenic uh, global warming, uh, evolution, all of these things. Uh, the framework is wrong, and the framework excludes God, and so everything they say may be partially true, but it's partially false, so it can't be true. So Jesus says when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's the father for he's a liar and the father of lies. So what happens is that uh, Adam and Eve disobey the word because she did not understand the word or interpret it correctly. He just flat out violates it. He disobeys it, and uh, there are results. And so uh, they both eat of the fruit in Genesis 3.6, and then we see the results. The results are interesting. Genesis 3-7, then the eyes of both of them 
were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering, uh, uh, coverings. So what happens is, because of sin, their eyes are opened to evil, and everything they see is somehow wrong now. Even their own creation, naked, is now wrong. And so they see evil there, so they want to cover it up. Now what's interesting is that the word that is used here, uh, that they made themselves coverings. This word is used a number of times in the Old Testament, and about 90% of the time it's translated as a belt. A belt is something that is very narrow. The idea here is that basically they're making loincloths. They're, they're, they're not providing much for themselves. It's, it's rather limited. Uh, it's something that is small. Uh, in some places, it's it's like just a sash around a robe. Uh, but we'll get to it at the end. When God provides a covering for them, it's a term for a tunic that covers everything. And again, we see this picture of God's sufficient grace. He is overabundant in providing a complete covering, and they're just coming up with this very inadequate partial uh, partial covering of of themselves. So. The eyes of both of them are open. We see a similar phrase in Luke when the Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. And what does he do there? He takes them through the law and the prophets and shows them that everything in the Old Testament points to him. And their eyes were opened. See, that's the contrast. Adam and Eve disobey God and their eyes are open to evil, God, uh, Christ, takes them through the word and their eyes are opened uh, to the truth. So this is the breakdown of worship now. They can't worship and serve God because, as we see in verse 8, is they are afraid. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, the trees of the garden. Why are they doing that? Well, when God asked them, they, Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Now, he's clothed himself, but he still sees himself as exposed and inadequate and weak and naked, and he lacks what he knows he needs. He's tried to cover it up. Now, that's often used as a picture of man trying to save himself and solve the problem on his own apart from, apart from God, and that's exactly what it is, that man's works, man's efforts, as Isaiah says, are filthy rags. They cannot solve the problem. And so God then uh, asks several questions to expose uh, what has happened, and then we're going to have what is commonly known as the curse or God's oracle where he describes um, what the consequences of their sin are going to be for the serpent, for the woman, and then for the man. We've gone over that quite a bit. But what I want to do is skip down to uh, verse 20 as we begin to see the consequences in reference to worship. And so when we get down here in verse 20, we read, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
Now, that's positive, that's good, but what we see here, what we've discovered is that uh, when we look at archaeological discoveries and we study ancient religions, that the Phoenicians perverted this. And this is something we'll get into a little more in the in next week and the week after, is that you see the perversion of worship take place in the development of world religions. And so we have Eve, and her mother in Hebrew is Chava. It's a Chet Vav Hey. The Hey is a feminine ending. And in the Phoenician, there is a God, and, and Eve is called this because she's the mother of the living. In the Phoenician religion, there is a goddess of the living whose name is Chavat. And it is, the key at the end is the feminine ending in Phoenician. And so you say, well, I can see that there's where, where they would get that. They would have the corruption of the story about Eve and turn this into a goddess. But there's more that goes on here because if you look at the depictions of the mother goddess, the mother goddess is a serpent. The mother goddess is a, sla- is, is a snake. And so this becomes the depiction of the mother of life is the serpent. And so we see from this how the various world religions developed as degradations of the truth, as perversions and uh, corruptions of the truth. And we see how the serpent shows up across uh, various cultures. There's a common theme in many pagan religions representing gods or goddesses with serpents. I have been told that if you go to the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, then you will see depictions of serpents all inside the tombs. Very, uh, you, you think about the, um, the diadem that the uh, Egyptian pharaoh wore, and it has a cobra on it. And so this, the serpent shows up again and again within Egyptian, uh, Egyptian religion. And so these ancient people, as they rejected God, they began to worship the creature instead of the creator. That comes out of Romans 1, 18 to 20. And so they're worshiping the serpent rather than God. And so this leads to a complete perversion of worship. But, but what we'll see when we look at various, uh, various religions is that there are certain things that continue even though they're perverted. You get the idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice shows up in every world religion. You get the idea of an image in the temple. You get the idea of that, that God is the source of blessing and prosperity, but they twist that into the fertility religions, and somehow you have to do something to motivate God to bless you and to uh, make you fruitful, and so they pervert that into all sorts of sexual promiscuity so that you go into the temple and you engage in, um, uh, in magic, and it's called sympathetic magic in the in the temple. That if you act out something, then the gods will then do it in response to what you do. It's you do something as a mirror of what you want them to do, and so uh, this is this is what took place. And so you have 
sexual activity with the temple prostitutes in order to motivate the gods and goddesses to give you more crops and bring more rain, and so everything will be fruitful and you will be prosperous, just an early form of the prosperity gospel. Um, This idea of the serpent runs all the way through. We see Satan described as the serpent of old in Revelation 12.9, who's attacking Israel, the uh, woman who flees into the wilderness. We also see a description in Isaiah 11.8 that the child will be able to play by the cobra's den and not worry about being bitten. See, in Israel, they did worry about being bitten as they were escaping from, from Egypt. They were, went through an area where they were attacked by fiery serpents, probably refers to the serpent's bite and burned, made them feel uh, terrible, feverish, and then they would die. And so in order to deliver them, God told Moses to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. So it's the pole would indicate its separation from the people, and also the pole would indicate the idea of its putting being put on a cross. And at the cross, Satan was defeated. And God says, everyone who's bitten when he looks at it shall live. It's an example of faith that is used by John, or used by Jesus, rather, in John 3, 14, and 15, that just precedes the well-known verse of John 3:16 for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him and believing in him is illustrated by looking at the serpent that's how simple faith is it, it just looking to God to save you looking to the cross understanding that Christ died for your sins and you look to the cross and you're saved you live so it's that simple for understanding faith Later on, though, we see how truth is perverted because this brazen serpent was kept, it survived, and in the time of Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18.4, when he is removing all of these idols from the temple and cleansing the temple, one of the things that is taken out of the temple is the bronze serpent that Moses had made, and it is broken into pieces. So it had become an object of worship uh, in their idolatry. So what we see is the complete breakdown of truth because the word of God is is not known and that leads to sin and leads to further uh, further provision. The only solution is God's solution. Genesis 3.21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And this word that is used for translated a tunic, it's a good translation, it describes a full-length robe that would completely cover somebody in contrast to, as I said earlier, just this little loincloth of fig leaves that Adam and Eve made. Man is insufficient to clothe himself, but God is going to clothe him. And, of course, in order for God to clothe them with skins of animals, this is this brings into focus the fact that these animals had to die. So the first death occurs at that point. Adam and Eve are going to see this animal die right in front of them because of what they did. And that had to be just just stunning for them. They had no idea of what death was. They had never seen anything die. They had never seen pain or suffering. And this lamb 
We're going to assume it's a lamb or a goat is going to be slaughtered and bleed and bleat, and they will be confronted with the consequences in a very real graphic image in front of them of what sin did. And God is going to teach them about this. And I believe this is the, this is the first sacrifice and that God has to teach them how to take care of the animal, how to slaughter the animal, how to skin the animal, how to treat the hide so that it will be supple and will be comfortable. And so there's a whole lot more that goes on here, and it may have lasted. This is just summarizing what probably took maybe a day or two uh, to develop. And then they are removed from the garden, and this army of cherubs is set up. Now, that's an introduction. It's subtle. The introduction to sacrifice, it's subtle. It's not detailed, but more detail will come as we go through. Now, remember, where's Moses when he writes this? He's on the plains of Moab. He is writing down what God the Holy Spirit is uh, inspiring him to write down. He's not answering every question but everything that he's writing down is well known to the Jews already. So he doesn't have to go into a lot of detail. When he first introduces sacrifice, he doesn't have to tell them what clean and unclean animals are at this point. When we get to Genesis chapter 6, we see our Genesis 9, when Noah gets off the ark, he, he has, or, or when God, actually when God instructs him, which animals to take on the ark? He said, take every, two of every clean, I mean, excuse, two of every unclean and seven of every, every clean. Well, how did Noah know what was clean or unclean? Well, Noah knew what was clean and unclean, and the Jews who were reading this knew what was clean and unclean because uh, they had been practicing this for, for generations. And so Moses doesn't have to start telling them about the fact that a blood sacrifice is being introduced at this point because they already understand that. They know the story already. And so that forms a backdrop to the first sacrifice that we see described in Scripture, which is what happens when we get into Genesis uh, chapter 4. And we'll come back and start there next time and get into what has been... Uh, um, uh, what what took place there, how that affects worship, and what we will see if you look down uh, to the end of the chapter. What's the last thing that we read at the end of chapter 4? Seth is uh, born to replace Abel, and he has a son, and he names him Enosh. So he's going to be the third generation and we're told at that time then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now that's going to be an important phrase to understand all the way down through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. We studied it in the Peter series a little while ago. We're going to bring out some other things, but we're going to see that, that this is part of worship. And what we see here is that it relates to proclaiming who God is and what he has done. So that proclamation then becomes part of worship. So worship now is going to involve sacrifice, and it's going to involve proclamation uh, of who God is and what he has done for it. And we'll see some other aspects that begin to be introduced 
as we go along. Father, thanks for this time we've had together. Help us to think more precisely about your word and about what you have revealed and to apply these things in our own personal sense of who you are and understanding who you are and what you have done because this should be at the very core of our worship and that we must understand that all of our life is to be defined as worship in serving you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.